Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. You're sounding very spry, given how depressing we're going to start this episode. <laughs> Look, man, we're only doing one episode this week, so I was able, I guess, to keep a little bit of energy and reserve. I'm also coming off a bit of an illness, feel myself bouncing back, so I just got that pep in my step. I suppose. But uh, yeah, only one episode this week. Apologies to the listeners if you were expecting two. But again, I came down with a bit of a stomach bug. Not fun. Cash was busy working on some video stuff. So things sometimes just get in the way. But we're going to try and make up for it with a killer episode to cap off the week here. Although as Cash mentioned, it's not going to be a particularly fun episode because we have some depressing news to discuss. A couple... Injuries and sort of on the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the teams that they're impacting. One of them, Cade Cunningham, going to be done for the season. I mean, he hasn't played in a minute. I don't even know when the last time he suited up was, but he's been dealing with the shin injury that is reportedly going to require surgery that is going to knock him out for the rest of his sophomore campaign. Kind of a bumpy start to the career of last year's number one overall pick, and we can get into talking about that a bit. Do you want to start with that, or do you want to start with the Steph stuff? Like, I mean, I, th- I think we have to start with the Steph stuff, just because of the the magnitude. Yeah, the the league wide importance of it. I think, um, given, I mean, we're talking about the defending champions. We're talking about Steph Curry and uh, about a team that, I mean, no one can afford to lose their franchise player, you know, for any extended period of time. But the Warriors, given their start, can especially not afford to have lost Steph Curry. Like this is a team that, you know, they, they had kind of picked it up. It seemed like they had figured it out and they were putting some wins together. They had climbed out of that hole where I think they started the season, what, like six, five or six games under 500 climbed out of that hole, suddenly had a winning record. They still couldn't win on the road though. They were two and third. They're now two and 13 on the road. And overall they're back under 500. They're 14 and 15. And now Steph Curry is out for a couple weeks. And if he only misses a couple weeks, okay. That means he's going to miss games in Philly, in Toronto, in New York, in Brooklyn, then home to the Grizzlies, Hornets, and Jazz. Then they they host the Blazers, I think, right on the like two-week mark. I would probably bet against him playing that game, but I feel like without Steph, that eight-game stretch, best-case scenario is like three and five. Best-case scenario. And that puts them at 17 and 20 going into the new year. And again, we're talking, in my opinion, best case scenario. And that's assuming Steph only actually misses two weeks. There's no guarantee it might not extend longer. So yeah, man, this injury, you know, in addition to obviously just being a bummer for Steph is a really precarious one for the Warriors because, you know, you go into the new year, a few games under 500, you're looking at having to go something like 33 and 12 to end up getting to 50 wins like the chance at a top two or three seed slowly start. I, I know it's still kind of early, but that stuff starts to slip through your fingers earlier than you'd think. Like it can get late kind of early and you know, yeah, the West is compact and it's not like I think they're going to completely fall out of the pack here, but they are already tied for 10th and they're tied in the last call or sorry, they're in 10th. They're tied in the last column with Minnesota who's in 11th. And I know you could say, well, the West is so compact. They're really only five and a half games out of first. Yeah, they're only four and a half games clear of dead last too. You know, the, the West being compact goes both ways here. And so 
if Steph can get back, you know, do I think they're going to finish with a losing record? No. Will they eventually figure it out if he gets back and they stay relatively healthy? Yes. They'll get into, at worst, the play-in mix, most likely the playoff mix. But I talk about it all the time when a team starts slow and then there ends up with an injury. And, like, even if they end up figuring it out and get to the playoffs or whatever it is, like, the path you end up on becomes that much more difficult. Like, if it ends up that this bump in the road has them finishing fourth or fifth. And it's like, there's a first round series between the Warriors and Suns. Like that, that's a big impediment to both those teams, obviously, but that's not the way you want to start uh, a playoff run where you're trying to defend a championship. You sure as hell don't want to have to start in the play-in and having to win games just to make the playoffs proper, especially with a veteran team like that. And also it's important to note the ripple effects this would have throughout the Western conference, right? Like Warriors end up in a play-in spot and now it's, you know, maybe New Orleans or Memphis. It's like, hey, here's your reward for winning 55 games and finishing first or second in the West, the Warriors in the first round. So in addition to obviously having some like serious, seriously negative effects on the Warriors season and at least regular season outlook and all that, it could also have some big ripple effects on the Western Conference as a whole. And even in, like just last note, even a team like the Lakers, who I've spent plenty of time clowning this year, and we've talked about them a lot. We don't have to talk about them today. But even a team like the Lakers, like this is the kind of thing where you look at it as like, hey, you know, we're only a game and a half back of the Warriors. They're going to be without Steph now. Like this is our opportunity to get in that mix. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, I think, worth us talking about the Steph injury before Cade. You know, all, all due respect to Cade. But yeah, fair enough. I mean, it is. Obviously, in terms of, like I said, the teams that's impacting, there is sort of more at stake in terms of the Warriors season potentially hanging in the balance, whereas Detroit, we can, we can get into talking about where their season is headed or was headed even before Cade, you know, was officially done for the year. But in the Warriors case, I just have no idea what to make of this team. Like they're 14 and 15, despite the fact that Steph has played at an MVP level, averaging 30 seven and seven on 68% true shooting and they can't get their heads above water, like above 500. They're what I think minus 10 per hundred possessions with him on the bench. Dude, they are, I think more than 18 points worse or something offensively, which I guess isn't that surprising. I think NBA Wowie's metrics have them as like 19.9 points per 100 possessions worse. Uh, Their metrics have, the Warriors at 101.7 points per 100 possessions when Steph Curry's on the bench. To put that in perspective, the league worst Hornets on the offensive end, 107.5. So the, the Warriors are like six points worse offensively than the worst offensive team in the league when Steph sits. Yeah, it's been rough. And I think, you know, last year they actually had one of their best seasons ever in terms of scoring the ball when Steph wasn't on the floor. And I think the season Poole had contributed to that a lot. And so him taking a bit of a step back this year has, I think, had a very disastrous effect on their ability to put up points when Steph's not on the floor. And, you know, a tweak that the Warriors made was, you know, when Poole was out there without Steph to make sure that Draymond was out there with him. And that kind of required them to split up Steph and Draymond more than they were maybe comfortable doing initially, but it became absolutely essential. And 
it's still not a huge sample this season. I think it's just over 110 minutes total of Draymond being on the floor without Steph. But they've been a, a solid positive in terms of their scoring margin in those minutes, actually, which obviously a big part of that is the defense, right? Like those minutes that they were winning with Draymond on and Steph off, they were winning because their defense was elite, not because, you know, like their offense was still basically performing like one of the worst, if not the worst offenses in the league. I think now they're probably going to have one, like have to have one of Poole or Draymond on court at all times. And it's going to be a lot more on Poole's shoulders. And I'm curious to see if he can rise to that challenge, right? I'm sure the Warriors are curious to see that too, having just given him that massive extension in the offseason. You know, it's the first year of that deal. He's still young. It's not like he has to prove right now that he was worth it. But it would be a hell of a good time to start proving it, you know, like considering the the disappointing season that he's had up to this point. So there's that. that, You know, the other thing I'm curious to see is, like last time Steph got hurt, I mean like missed significant time, uh, it was a couple years ago when he broke his hand and he played, what, six games that entire season? Yeah, the year and they the, the, like, completely Exactly, apart. the year they completely went into the tank, got the number two overall pick. Don't have to talk about what they did with it, but basically when that happened, I think I and a lot of other people were curious to see what Steve Kerr would do in terms of you know how the, the team functions schematically, especially on offense. And... He kind of didn't change that much, right? Like he really stuck to his principles uh, and that seemed to be very important to him. Like if it was going to be a lost season, it was going to be a lost season, but he wasn't going to stray from that kind of motion offense and like the equal opportunity offense where everybody's moving. Yeah, they they have to, it, j- the one thing I'd say, I guess, in defense, of, not even in defense of Steve Kerr, but I guess maybe part of the rationale and they actually talked about it, you know, after winning the championship last season was that, they thought it was important to keep to those principles because a guy like Jordan Poole or, you know, insert whatever name. Andrew Wiggins. Wiggins Andrew was Wig- the biggest right. beneficiary of that. Yeah, Wiggins and Poole was there still as well. And the curse talked about that too. Like those guys ended up learning that system. Whereas it's like if they had completely deviated from that and had those guys spend that season getting acclimated to the Warriors in a completely different system. And then when you reintroduce Steph, those guys basically now have to learn all over again the way the Warriors play. Whereas, yeah, it was a lost season, but those guys at least learned the Warriors way offensively. So here's the difference, though. Now they're in a season where Steph is going to come back and be a factor. They're trying to stay in the playoff mix. Yeah, it's not a lost mix. The stakes are different. Like that season, it didn't really matter. It was a lost season anyway. Now it's like every win is going to count. How patient can he afford to be if he keeps doing that and like, you know, maintaining the motion principles and it's not working, you know, and to what extent is he sort of just going to have to lean into a little bit more straightforward kind of high pick and roll with pool. Although again, that hasn't worked all that well because teams are playing a deep drop against him and he hasn't really been able to punish it so maybe that's not the answer either but without Steph there to make all of that off-ball motion the cutting and the screening and the slips and like all the stuff that works when Steph is there because of the panic that he induces and his magnetism and his ability to draw two or three guys to the ball I I don't know I don't know what that looks like and whether it works and and we'll see when Wiggins gets back right because they've struggled without him and he's still out with this adductor injury. And so having him and Steph out at the same time, 
yeah, they're going to lose some games here. And it's really going to be a question of to what extent they can kind of stem the bleeding until Steph gets back, whenever that is. Like how how long he winds up being out for could determine whether this team is, you know, like I is the top six slipping away from them already? Is that still in the cards? Well, or are that, they looking at a play-in spot at best? I'll ask you this question. And I acknowledge that it's very tough to like answer this with any kind of, you know, mathematical certainty or anything close to it. But so say Steph misses only two or three weeks, but given the schedule, when he comes back early January, the Warriors are four, five, six, in that about five games under 500 in early January and outside the top 10. And then Steph stays relatively healthy the final three months of the season, right? If someone just gave you that scenario and then said, so where do you think they end up in this wet? Like, would you say, okay, then they end up in the top six anyway, because you get, you know, you get three more months of that, or do you end up saying, eh, five games under 500, early January, a tough West. That's more like a play-in team at best. Yeah, I think you'd have to say play-in team because right? and wh- then, like, what have we seen so far that suggests that Steph coming back is suddenly going to turn them into a juggernaut considering they're a 500 team with him playing some of the best basketball of his career through the first couple months of the season. I completely agree with you. I, and that and that's what I'm saying. And that's what I was getting at earlier in the show. It's like, if we're kind of in agreement on that, that the way things are trending and the way they're going to have to survive now, they're most likely, like odds-wise, probably a play-in team. Well, it's like, well, one of the first, one of the top two teams in the West is going to end up having to play them in the first round. Like, those ripple effects, man, are going to reverberate. I mean, look, it, it, is there, do you see... Obviously, there's no real upside when, especially when you're a team as dependent on your superstar as the Warriors currently are, like when you lose that superstar for any amount of time. But can you look really hard and find a little bit of a silver lining here where, okay, this is an opportunity for some of these younger guys to play a bit more and for them to maybe figure out with a little bit longer leash and some room to maybe make mistakes and figure some stuff out to, to get a better sense of how they want to play when Steph's not on the floor, you know, and then when he gets back, they actually are more confident, more practiced at doing it. And then the minutes with him on the bench are no longer such a tire fire. Like, is that I'm, I'm straining here to find something positive to take no, out of this, but what, I genuinely don't even have faith in that. I'd say the closest thing to a silver lining to me, if there's going to be a silver lining here, I think it has to be Poole. I think this has to be when and where Jordan Poole saves his season, I guess you could say. Or like, that to me, that's the only silver lining I could even envision is Poole with greater opportunity, with greater dependency on him now, mm. figures it out. The ball's like, it starts falling for him. He gets in a bit of a rhythm, helps them at least survive, like keep their head almost above water without Steph. And then just kind of like carries that forward once Steph gets back and is the player we saw more like last year. To me, that's the only possible silver lining. And if he doesn't do that over these next few weeks, then they're maybe effed. What about Clay? I mean, is is there some upside there for him where... He's still playing on a minutes restriction, I think. So maybe I think so. Maybe there's still actually a limit to how much he can step up in Steph's absence here. But he's certainly going to be getting more shots, you'd have to think. Yeah. And he's kind of been trying, I feel like, to shoot his way into rhythm 
since this season started. And honestly, since he came back from that two and a half year absence last year, he's been trying to shoot himself into rhythm. Like he is shooting. It feels like every time he touches the basketball. And I think that's been a point of frustration for Warriors fans this season, because for a lot of it, he hasn't been shooting especially well. And now it's almost like you sort of just want him taking all those shots because who else is going to do it at anything resembling the level that he's going to be able to, especially while Wiggins is out. Yeah, it's uh, dicey times in the Bay. And I mean, we'll see, like, Steph will be back before the trade deadline, so I guess they'll have time to reassess. But as we mentioned on our last episode, trade season has kind of unofficially begun here with this December 15th threshold now in the rear view. So the players that sign new deals in the offseason are eligible to be traded, and maybe that's going to lead to some movement on the transaction front. I wonder how or if this changes their behavior on that front at all. Like, is there a different type of player that they target now to maybe help them hold the fort while Steph is out? I think it all depends on what they know in terms of the length of this absence. Like, if it really is two-ish weeks, I don't even think they're necessarily thinking about that, right? Like a move that they need to make Mm -hmm. to hold the fort. But if they know that, you know, he's going to be reevaluated in two weeks, but that maybe they've already been given the news, like, look, most likely this is like a month plus injury, then I think for sure they have to be cooking up some deals because, yeah, like if if they were to miss like a month, they could legitimately miss the play-in altogether. But what's the reporting been? I've seen a few weeks, several weeks. Like, it's a little hazy in terms of the was actual it, timeline. I, yeah, I feel like it was minimum of two weeks. No? I think, <laughs> look, he's, it's uh, late, it's mid-December, so tw- I, I guess he's out two to 20 weeks. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, This is another thing where, like, you know, you mentioned okay, then he's got to get back and like, can they figure it out? And I, I know, I don't want to get nitpicky about like the language you use there, but like, cause I know what you mean to sort of pull themselves together. And yeah, go Steph, on a Steph run. will figure it out. He'll be fine, but it's more well, like, it's not just about him figuring it out. It's more, and I kind of said this when Clay was coming back too, where it's like, there's so much continuity there and the Warriors infrastructure is so strong. Like they more than any other team, like it's, it's not a struggle to work these players back in. Right. Like they're all so familiar and so practiced playing together and playing in this system that I don't think it's going to be much of an issue or like there's going to be any kind of adjustment period when Steph gets back. And this is why I'm saying I I don't know what to make of this team. It's so confusing because their starters, dude, their starters have been so good this year. It's actually insane. Like they've been considerably better than they were last year when they won the championship. Like their starting lineup, do you know what their starting lineup's offensive rating is? Uh, not off the top of my head, but I imagine it's outrageous. Give it a guess. Like uh, the, the, the Celtics, the Celtics offense right now, which is, you know, everyone's talking about the most efficient of all time, I think is one, uh, 118.1 per hundred. Yeah. So I'd say around 120 ish. 130. Well, that's insane. But Steph, yeah, that also, play Wiggins, Draymond, Looney scoring 130 points per hundred possessions. That is also part of the reason why I think you've asked me a couple of times now this season about different teams potentially being the team to beat in the West. And I keep saying, no, I, as wonky as they look to start the season, I, if I had to put money on it, I'd still say the Warriors are the team to beat in the West. This recent development 
changes that equation because we just don't know now like when Steph's going to be back, where they'll finish. But the way they've looked with their best players on the court is why I've maintained they are still the team to beat in the West. Well, I'll tell you one thing, man. We're going to get a glimpse of this future that they've been building towards, this two timelines thing. We're going to see how sturdy that bridge to the future actually is. And obviously, like the the idea is these guys are going to be a little bit further along and more developed once Steph is finally ready to make his curtain call. And certainly this season, he's looked a long way from actually being anywhere close to being out of the league. So it's not something they necessarily have to worry about for a while, but... Yeah, we're going to see what it looks like without Steph and how ready are these guys to actually step up and contribute in a meaningful way to a winning basketball team. And I think you highlighting Pool like that is the right guy to focus on right now for sure. He's the he's the one guy who right now is actually capable of doing something about it. So that's the Steph injury and the Warriors. Let's move over to the Eastern Conference and a very different type of player for a very different type of team, but one that's almost equally interesting to me just because obviously there was a ton of hype about Cade coming out of college and drafted number one, like the Pistons are, you know, in theory, they're intriguing, right? Like they've accumulated all this young talent and Cade has certainly had flashes of looking like the number one overall pick and Jaden Ivey has had flashes of absolutely electric play as a rookie this year. Same as Jalen Duran, like, the pieces are intriguing, but on the whole, it hasn't coalesced into anything resembling a successful basketball team. Like they're still bottom five on both sides of the ball. And I know this is like a long-term rebuild, but I just, I think you would have hoped to see more progress from this team so far. And now it's like, okay, Cade is going to miss basically his entire second season. And when he's been healthy, it's been kind of rocky you know like I I think that he has shown that the skills are there like the playmaking the feel for the game his instincts on both ends of the floor like I think he's a very smart positionally sound defender you know and he's kind of he doesn't quite have like Luca's size obviously but he's shown a bit of that back to the basket bully ball type of game where you know, the peak version of him can maybe be something like a Luca light, but he shot the ball really poorly. And we know there was that whole thing about him changing his shooting mechanics after being drafted. They wanted his release point to be higher. Always a good and, recipe. And like, this is the thing, man, in the past, maybe I'm just too scarred by like the Markel Fultz and Ben Simmons things. But like in the past, I feel like I would have ignored that and been like, look, he's in his second year. He's super young. Like there's still so much time for him to figure this out. But I guess after seeing how those early red flags have kind of continued to get redder and redder over time for certain, you know, number one overall picks in the past, something like that just gets my antenna up a bit. Yeah, it's a maroon flag at this point. It's something to to keep an eye on. And I would say... It's particularly concerning because I feel like ultimately Cade is going to have to be like a really good shooter to be the type of player that people thought he was going to be. Because it's not like, you know, obviously we're talking in NBA terms, but by NBA standards, Cade's not some blow you away athlete, right? Like that's not really his calling card. So as much as those other skills are there and the ability to overwhelm 
similar players at his position with his size and also use his playmaking, his ability to chisel his way to the basket, all that stuff. Like ultimately he's going to have to be able to shoot the ball. And we just haven't seen that so far. Like he's, uh, he was at 28% from three this year before the injury. Um, I think he was a little bit above 30% last year, 50% true shooting last year, 49% true shooting this year. Cause he's also not shooting particularly well from two point range. Doesn't get to the free throw line a ton. Again, super young, super skilled, ton of time, but it's been an inauspicious start to his career, I think. Yeah, and you know what doesn't help that development? The fact that through two seasons in the NBA, his total games played will be 76 games. Uh, I was tweeting about it early this year when he made, he ended up coming back, and I don't remember how many games he played in that stretch before he got hurt again, but it's not just that he's inefficient because look, a lot of, even guys that end up being, go look at LeBron James's efficiency as a, like rookies and young players in general are usually inefficient. Even ones that end up great, just like they're usually bad team defenders. But at least in my opinion, I don't think Cade has shown me the kind of like individual advantage creation that Mm -hmm. I'd want to see from a guy who's the number one pick and a guy who is, projected to be and expected to be like this offensive dynamo who offensively was expected to like carry the Pistons forward, right? Maybe not immediately, but to get to that point eventually, you know, I wrote about Paolo Banquero last week and like, I'm obviously a big fan of what he's doing as a rookie, but Banquero is a perfect example of a guy who his efficiency has not been good. It's been about average, but Banquero can't really shoot yet. You know, his, his jumper comes and goes game to game. But then you look at it and the guy's scoring like an average or decently efficient 20 points a game as a rookie because he's got all these different ways to create advantages, right? A, he's like 6'10", 265. Like he's huge. He's bigger than Cade. But he honestly seems a bit craftier. He's got an insane free throw attempt rate because guys can't guard him without fouling him already, even though he just turned 20. And not to make this all about Paolo, we can talk about him maybe on another episode, but... The point is, is that like, even when a young player is doing things and not doing them efficiently, guys that are going to be good or guys that you expect to be good, you can usually see things where it's like, okay, as this develops or as this comes together, he's going to be really good. Or this, this part of his game is going to take off because you see him creating advantages pretty consistently. I tweeted about this earlier and I had some Pistons fans like coming at me about how I don't watch enough Pistons basketball when I tweeted it. But like, I don't see Cade creating those kinds of advantages regularly. And that to me is the biggest concern because then you're talking about year three is going to roll around. He's played less than 80 games in the NBA and the way the Pistons are trending, they're very clearly going to end up with another high pick. And if it's like a guy like Wemayama or a Scoot Henderson or someone in that top tier, that's going to have a lot of the ball next year. Like like, the ascendant Killian Hayes, perhaps. No, Hayes, look, again, another guy who, perfect example, Killian Hayes, like his efficiency has been nothing to admire, okay, during this stretch where he's played better. But you can watch Killian Hayes play and be like, this guy like is getting better. He's starting to see things with the ball in his hand that I, I don't know if he saw even weeks ago. Like he, You can see this development. And with Cade, maybe it's unfair to him because it's been so start and stop his career so far, but mm-hmm. I just did, haven't seen enough of that from him. And it, But yeah, that's a good point. It's like, look, Hayes continues to develop over the course of the season. If you do add a Wembenyama, a Scoot, someone at the top of the draft next year that's going to have more of the ball in, in their hands, and then you bring Cade back into the mix. I'm not saying, oh, you don't give him the ball, but it's like, if he's still not showing those 
advantage creation abilities next season and the shots not there yet how much of the ball is he really gonna deserve at that point if there's other guys who are doing better things or are doing it more efficiently whatever the case may be and like at that point I know now I'm getting a bit ahead of myself but it's like at that point then you start asking questions like oh man year three they're having trouble like giving him the role he needs to thrive like it can snow it's still really early I I don't want to get worst case scenario but I'm just saying like it can snowball very quickly and it's just unfortunate because obviously it's not you know anything he's done wrong from an injury perspective he's just been a bit snake bitten there when it comes to injury luck but I think it's definitely concerning at the very least for his own development and for yeah like the way the Pistons projected their future with him in the middle of it yeah I mean I would say unless or until they get somebody like you know pretty much just Wembanyama or maybe Scoot yeah he's still their number one priority and with a bullet you know yeah as he should be I, I was completely jo- like, look, great for no. Killian Hayes. Nice to see him playing better. But I was completely joking about that. I don't no, think I, Killian Hayes is an on Cade Cunningham's level. I don't mean to say it, but I'm saying at least with Killian Hayes on a different level, because he's, the expectations aren't the same, but yeah. there's like a progression there that I can see. Yeah. And I think that is really at the end of the day, why this injury is such a bummer is because he's only played 12 games this season. And in some of them, he's looked really good. And it just would have been very nice, you know, obviously for us as basketball fans, but especially for the Pistons organization to see what his progression would have looked like over the course of the season and what developing synergy between him and Ivy and, you know, the rest of those young players would have been. It's just, again, like I don't know in the big picture where all this is going, barring them winning the lottery again, and then maybe we'll have a much clearer picture of it. But any way you slice it, I think this is just such a an unfortunate injury situation again young ton of time a lot of runway for this team but it's fair to say like to this point it's been a disappointment for Cade and that doesn't that doesn't have to mean that it's going to continue to be a disappointment but I think objectively that's true yeah he had that one game against Milwaukee Pistons Mm -hmm. lost it because of course they did and that was the one game I don't know what he ended up with, maybe like 30 or around there. But it, that was the one game where I saw things in him where I was like, okay, like this season could be something for Cade. But I feel like that was the only game that that was really the issue. Like he had a big numbers in another game where they got blown out. But for like for the most part, he was just kind of there. And unfortunately, yeah, now he's not going to have the chance to, you know, add to that and kind of write the season. I, I don't know how long that shin injury was affecting him. Yeah, I, guess, I suppose it's possible that he just wasn't 100%, right? And that's why we didn't see those games. I mean, tough one. Tough one all around. Um, why don't we leave that injury conversation there and we'll take a break and we'll come back and discuss, I don't know, I guess a slightly happier subject, but probably an equally confounding one in the Los Angeles Clippers. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, in happier news, the LA Clippers 
somewhat resemble a basketball team again for, you know, short bursts uh, like they did against the Boston Celtics a few nights ago. Put on an absolute defensive clinic in that game. A really, you know, their most impressive win of the season. And notably, I mean, they had pretty much their whole team. Uh, I think Norm Powell was out. But apart from that, I don't think they were missing any of their key rotation players. And honestly, I'm not sure. Like, yes, they could use Norm Powell's offensive punch. And their offense is quite anemic right now, which we could talk about. But on the whole, I don't know how much they miss him just because their defense is so airtight. And he is probably the worst defender in their rotation, if we're being honest. So... In that respect, I don't know how much it hurt them, but nice seeing Kawhi finally have a Kawhi-like game. I, you know, it was just nice to be reminded, I guess, of what that team can look like at something close to its top gear. The following game, they honestly slogged through a really ugly win over an undermanned Timberwolves team, where, again, their offense just looked like a complete disaster. And then after that, PG and Kawhi are both out and they predictably lose big to a healthy Suns team. So I don't know, man. What do, what do we make of this team? They're 17 and 14. Their offense is 28th, but they got a top five defense. And, you know, they've been elite, elite, elite with Kawhi on the floor, even though Kawhi hasn't really looked anything like Kawhi on balance. What are the Clippers? You know, during the break, we were talking about the Grizzlies just shellacking the Bucks last night. We've talked, you know, a lot about the Pelicans this year. With the Warriors injury now and the uncertainty surrounding the Clippers and the Nuggets still being a tire fire on defense. I mean, is this just a two-team conference right now? And is it just the Grizzlies and the Pelicans at the top? Or are the Clippers poised to join that mix? Like, what are they? Well, I think the Grizzlies-Pelicans thing is interesting just because I think from like a... Um you know, an NBA product perspective from a future minded perspective, I think years of Zion versus jaw at the top of the West would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. it, it will be fantastic, especially going all the way back to, you know, those same draft and all that. Um, in terms of the Clippers, look, if Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are healthy at the same time, the Clippers are a championship contender. Like we know this. I've said before, I'll say it again, that my faith in both those guys being healthy for long enough stretches when it matters is almost non-existent at this point. And that's why I wouldn't peg them as a true title contender, but I hope I'm wrong because seeing those guys play together and the Clippers at, you know, full capacity, it's just better for the league. Like you want the best teams at full strength. And yeah, I think you mentioned something interesting and it's something I was going to mention as well is that, Kawhi Leonard has played maybe like one and a half really good games so far this season. And yet, you go and look at the on-off splits, which I know sometimes can be a bit noisy or whatever, but the Clippers are like, I think, 20 or something points per 100 percentage better when Kawhi's on the court. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, well, are we sure Nikola Jokic isn't just still the MVP? I ended up doing a video about it, and I was talking about how when you look at the on-off numbers, like it was like the Nuggets are almost 30 points per 100 possessions better with him on the court and he still leads the league. Well, you know who's second in on-off net is Kawhi Leonard. Like, mm. and that's him at quality-wise, what, like 40%? He's nowhere near peak Kawhi Leonard standard. So like if and when he does get there, what's this Clippers team going to look like? Like they are very obviously a great team when healthy. 
Um, and the defense is as legit as it gets. I've loved Evita Zubac this season. Um, they're actually giving up quite a bit of shots at the rim, and he's done a good job of negating a lot of those. They're deep. Mann and Kennard and Batum have been good off the Looking bench. Batum, man. This I guy, know, man. He, it's yeah, it's incredible. He's, yeah, he's he looked, so important for them. He, remember when he was cooked? Like, he looked completely done and then just completely reinvigorated his career and now is just, like, one of the more important reserves and role players in the league on a contender now. But, yeah, yeah. no, Batum and and uh, Mann and Kennard have been good for them off the bench. I think Marcus Morris has actually been pretty solid for them in the starting lineup. Like I said, Zubac is playing the best ball of his career. PG has been PG. Kawhi, even though he hasn't looked good, has been very important when he's on the court. Like the ingredients are there. Norm, despite being a defensive negative, is, you know, and he hasn't even been good yet, really, this season. Like Norm was starting to pick it up before this groin injury. Mm They sidelined him for like three weeks now, but that scoring off the bench, like they, all the ingredients are there. Ty Lue, one of the best coaches, like tactically in the game. There's nothing I can say that people don't already know about the ingredients that are there and what this team looks like at full strength. It's just, we'll continue to ask the same questions until we see it in practice. Is, can Kawhi Leonard and Paul George be healthy at the same time between April and June? If they can, we know how good this team can be. I will ask you about the offense, though. Like, what, yeah. what have you seen from the offense when Kawhi has been in the line? Like, when Kawhi and PG have been there? to make you other than it's just well it's Kawhi Leonard and Paul George like what have you seen actually on the court that makes you think okay like if these guys get a string of games together the offense will be fine or maybe do you have very little oh that's what I was gonna say or do you have an opposite theory of like you think this offense is just bad I think the offense is bad if Kawhi can't be Kawhi because honestly it's very similar to what it was before like when when they had healthy Kawhi the offensive process was frequently very poor but it didn't matter like he was just able to bail them out with his shot making ability and his ability to score in isolation him and PG and it's it's just an inconsistency thing because there are some possessions where they are running actions on both sides of the floor and they're swinging the ball side to side and guys are punching gaps and they're playing with pace that's like half the time. And the other half of the time, it's just like guys dribbling 14 seconds off the clock and pulling up for a long mid-ranger. And there's just no consistency from one possession to the next. And again, it's like if Kawhi is peak Kawhi, it doesn't matter. They'll still have enough offensive firepower. But if he's not, and like this isn't the team that two years ago was one of the best jump shooting teams ever. And that's how they beat the Jazz in that series, even without Kawhi. They just shot the shit out of the ball. I don't, I don't, they're not that kind of team anymore, right? Like they don't, yeah, they have still take that a level. lot of, they still take a lot of jumpers. They don't get to the rim a lot, but they don't make They're very the jump shot reliant still, right? Like they don't get to the rim a ton. And like Zubaj gives them some of that rim presence, but they also play small a lot. And I actually think, like I mentioned Batum, right? And he's been awesome for them defensively. Like when they go small, it really works with him as the small ball five. But Batum is like a bystander on offense, you know? And if if Kawhi and PG can't really shoot the ball the way that they have in the past, I don't know. Like, the, the jump shooting just isn't nearly the same. It's like Powell and Kennard that are giving that to you. And then you have, like, John Wall in the mix and not knockdown shooting guards either. 
So to be a really jump shot reliant team that's not actually good at hitting jump shots, it just isn't a recipe for offensive success. They're also, I think, I don't know if it's second or third, but they're, they're one of the most frequent like ISO heavy teams while also being one of the most inefficient teams in isolation, which again, a lot of that probably is just Kawhi not being there. And when he is there, not being Kawhi. Yeah. And honestly, even in that game against the Celtics where he did break out, it, it was a lot of isolation play and it was a lot of post-ups that turned into turnaround jumpers and... Look, I mean, that's always been a big part of his game, right? But you also want to see a little bit more of those bully drives and the power stepping to the rim that we see from Kawhi at his best. And he's clearly just not there yet. And I guess I would have some concern about his ability to get back to that point. You know, he's 31 years old coming off of this ACL tear on top of the quad condition that had derailed him in the past. And I think... Look, the the offensive skills should not have eroded, right? Like we can see, obviously, like he still has the handle. The, the jumper hasn't quite been there. And maybe that's a result of him just not having his legs under him yet. But I don't really have that much concern that the jumper is going to be there for him for the most part. But in terms of, you know, the the burst, his elevation, the horizontal agility, And even just like that lower body stability that I feel like allows him to be such an effective post player and to be such a strong driver who can't get knocked off his spot that I I don't know. Like, I don't know if that comes all the way back. And if it doesn't, I can't see this being an above average offensive team, you know, unless the, the, the process significantly improves, but do, you know, do they have the personnel for that? I guess is a, a big question mark right now. I mean, off the top of my head, I'd say no. So then the question becomes, can the defense be good enough that, you know, if the offense is merely average, can they still be a a genuine threat? Because no, I don't think so. You don't think so? No, sorry. I think the defense can be good enough. I think it's that legit enough that even with the offense never hitting its stride and maybe Kawhi never being Kawhi again, that Mm -hmm. they are a solid playoff team who will obviously be a very tough out. But I don't think they can be a legitimate threat to win the title even with this defense, if the offense is what it is, if Kawhi is not Kawhi. Yeah, I I think you're probably right about that, just given the the quality of the teams that they're going to have to beat in the West, right? Um, But I do want to just shout out, I mean, even like the rotation players that you wouldn't think of as being good defensive players, like Kennard, Reggie Jackson, even Wall, man. And those guys aren't good individual defenders, really. But I think they've been really good at operating within the Clippers scheme and making like, timely help rotations like especially on the back line and just sort of being in the right place at the right time like all of those guys have done a very solid job of that Uh, especially Kennard I'm super impressed with him as a team defender actually which I I never thought of him as an above average defender before but I actually think he's been that this season I think he's like been one of like the sneaky best reserves in the league this season his shooting yeah is so important for them too right and so if you can continue to give them just solid defensive play and like it's also you know they ask those guys to switch onto pretty much anybody like their defense loves to switch and I don't necessarily always love that about them but I've been pretty impressed with the way that they've kind of managed to navigate some suboptimal matchups when they're switching you know Reggie Jackson or Luke Kennard or John Wall onto 
power playmaking wings and they have enough help behind those guys. And also those guys have like held up not that poorly in one-on-one coverage against those types of players uh, to get that badly burned by it. So I I think the defense will remain very strong, but yeah, I'm, I'm, kind of starting to get skeptical that the offense is going to be able to get up to a level that they're going to be a legitimate championship team. So I guess I'll just ask you straight up before we cap this conversation. Do, do you consider them a championship threat right now? Like if you're if you're naming title contenders in the NBA right now, are you including the Clippers? Not in the top tier. Not if, if there's like one tier of like the truest sense of title contenders, I would not include them. Uh, so how many Western the- Conference teams would you have in that tier? Zero. Zero? Yeah. So what do you think? It's a two-team title race right now? Is that what you're saying? But it's also December. I'm not saying, like, I'm I'm saying based on what we've seen and, like. Yeah. We did just see the, the Grizzlies Gri- yes. wax I, listen, the Bucks by 40 the, points last night. The Grizzlies and Pelicans are the closest teams to that tier right now in the West. And maybe some people will take that as Suns disrespect. That's exactly what it is. Um, <laughs> the, the the Grizzlies and Pelicans, like, deservedly so, are the closest to that tier. But again, I think, I, I one, it's, it's hard to talk about, like, contention and all that in December. But two, I think people forget a lot of times that there are different tiers of contention and levels of contention. And, like, there is a difference between... No questions asked. This team can absolutely win a championship right now, the way it is. And like, yeah, this team like is in the mix. And if things break a little right, like for sure they're in the mix and they can, but they're not like, I don't know. Like, do you, do you think New Orleans and Memphis right now in a playoff setting, like playing for a championship are in the same tier as Boston and Milwaukee? I, I'm, I'm not convinced that they're not. Fair enough. So, like, they could get in there, but that, like, are you are you one hundred percent convinced they are? Like, that's my question. Because if you're asking true, true top tier title contenders, in my opinion, you would have to say I'm convinced, not like oh, they could be. Like, I'm close to it. It's like they are or they aren't, and that's where I'd say right now it's still Boston and Milwaukee. But I'm very open to the fact that Memphis and New Orleans could nudge their way in there. I would say that I still consider Boston and Milwaukee the two best teams but that I am closer to being sure that, you know, at least a couple of those Western Conference teams are in that tier or will be by the end of the season than feeling the other way, that they're not. And and I think there are more teams that could join that mix. I do think the Clippers 100%. are one of them, even though yep. I'm, you know, feeling a little bit skeptical about the offense. I think Denver could be one of them, even though I'm feeling skeptical about the defense because Denver's offense is like, oh my God. They're they're like the rare team that I could look at and be like, you know, their defense could remain a complete tire fire and they still might be so overwhelming offensively that they can meaningfully contend. I do think they have to improve defensively, but maybe not by that much, considering how much they're able to score. Uh, I I think that by the end of the season, it's not going to be a two-team race. And I'm not saying that those three won't still be the favorites or that the champion won't ultimately come out of the East, but... I think some of these top West teams are kind of right there and knocking on the door. And Memphis certainly made a strong case for their inclusion last yep. night. And there'll, there'll probably but, be a couple teams in the East that nudge up against Boston and Milwaukee by the end of the year too. You think but so? It's a long season, man. Cleveland, maybe. Philly, maybe. There, there you go. You just named two. Like, would I bet on them doing it? 
joining Milwaukee and Boston? Probably not, but it is a long season. A lot can change. A move can be made. Like, I definitely don't think in mid-December I'm ready to say no one in the East has a chance. They're not playing like it right now, but it's a long season. So I do want to ask you this before we get out of here then, because yeah. I feel like our answers on this have changed a few times. Well, my, mine has remained Golden State, but right now, yeah. given – the what we do know about Steph's injury like we only know what we know what we've seen from the Clippers like take everything into consideration what we've seen so far this season no more gun to the head yeah scenarios for you putting a gun to my head and asking me to answer NBA questions so here's how we'll say it someone has hacked all your banking information they've got their hands on all of your money and they're going to put all your money all every last cent of it Everything from your great-grandfather's land developments in Guelph that got a park named after him. Every cent that you are worth, Joe Wolfon, is going to, against your will, be put on a team to win the Western Conference. All right? So it's less violent. There's no gun to your head, but your personal financial future is at stake here. The only thing you can do, you can't get them to stop. The only thing you can do is tell them which Western Conference team they can put all of this money on to win the West this year based on what you know right now. Who are you telling that vile, vile criminal to put that money on? Well, I don't want to waffle. And I did say on our, I think it was our last episode, that I felt the Pelicans were the team to beat in the West. But now, all of these assets at stake, (laughs) I don't want to. It's a question of trust, right? Like, I actually think... If you could tell me 100% that the Pelicans were going to be healthy in the playoffs, they would still be my pick. So I'm not waffling on the fact that fully healthy Pelicans, to me, are still the best team in that conference. But because there are still some health concerns, obviously, with that team and with Zion specifically, I think whether it's a gun to my head or, or every penny to my name at stake here, I feel like I probably have more trust in the Grizzlies at this point that that would be my pick. I think just too much uncertainty with the Clippers, too much uncertainty with the Warriors, too many trust issues with the Suns, too many defensive concerns with the Nuggets. And I don't know. I mean, like I remember talking before the season when you were, you laid out the case for the Bucks as the championship favorites. And it really came down to, they kind of had a like the, the fewest number of those question marks or like the least amount of distrust there. Yeah. And I'm starting to feel that way about Memphis, you know, like I think they're just, they've answered every question that's been asked of them time and time and time again. So I guess that's my answer for right now, but obviously subject to change as with everything. And I'm sure I will be waffling again and hating myself for it at some point <laughs> in the future, but uh, you're asking well, hey, me now at, least, at least there's no gun to your head. Thank God. Just just my great grandfather's legacy. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna take his name off the park for God's sake. Fuck, sorry, Grandpa Joe. That that's what the Grizzlies now have at stake for this season of theirs. Yeah, my Grandpa Joe's legacy. Um, all right, <laughs> that seems like a good place to leave this yeah. conversation. We're not gonna do make or miss today. Uh, we were planning on doing it if we had done an episode early this week. We didn't get around to that, but we'll be back early next week. Hopefully, that'll be a two-episode week for us, yeah, and we'll get a make-or-miss segment in. Well, 
we'll give the people what they want next week. It'll be because we probably are not recording the week after that. I'm pretty sure we're both going to be off for the holidays. So yeah. we'll give you two episodes next week to carry you through the end of 2022. And we'll make sure the first one has a make or miss in it. Uh, with that, I guess I will kick it over to you, Cash, for a fan shout out before we sign off for the weekend. Yeah, uh, I'm going to give uh, three fan shout outs that I got from the same place earlier this week. I was at uh, Friends of the Show, William Liu and Alex Wong's live event that they did as part of the Raptors show. They had Chris Boucher there. Uh, it was a fun night and uh, met a lot of people that like Pound the Rock, that enjoy our content at the score, whether it's in the app, on YouTube, the podcast, obviously. So uh, the three people in particular that came up to me and had, you know, brief but nice conversations about our content, Rebecca. Alex, not Alex Wong, another Alex, Rebecca, Alex, and Fred. So shout out to Rebecca, Alex, and Fred, who I met on Monday night and uh, got another shout out or two bang for the next episode or two uh, that came in more traditional forms through social media. So the usual call out so that we can get you a shout out on a future episode, hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo, email joe.wolfond.thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram, joe underscore 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 cash. And uh, just let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't. Maybe propose uh, the next live or die scenario that I can put Joe Wolf on in to give me an answer on something. Uh, and yeah, we'll get, you a f- we'll get you a shout out in the future because you deserve one for supporting the show. I just want to tack one on quickly just because you did a couple uh, related to the Spotify wrapped lists that uh, yeah. people had included us on or we that we'd been included on. And I had to give a shout out to uh, my buddy Thomas LaFoy, who had us number one on his Spotify wrapped. He listened to 2,965 minutes of Pound the Rock this past year. I don't even know that we recorded that many minutes. Yeah. I don't even podcast, think you and I but... listened to that many Pound the Rock minutes combined. I should hope not. <laughs> I spent enough time listening to you, Cash. Yeah, but true. anyway, shout out Thomas for listening to us for nearly 3,000 minutes this past year for being a, a truly devoted listener. Appreciate you, man. And uh, hope you'll keep listening in 2023. Does Thomas have us on while he sleeps? Is this like, you know, people have those like hypnosis tapes that <laughs> they used to use to quit smoking and stuff. Does Thomas just go to sleep with the sounds of Wolfon and Kasharo in his ears? I think it's too risky to, to go to sleep listening to Pound the Rock. You're liable to get woken up by you just getting slightly too animated about... I don't know. What's what's the thing that you would be likely to wake up a nearly sleeping person with uh, with a PTR rant? Now, nowadays, probably some Rob Polinka rant or something. <laughs> too risky, man. You don't want that shit seeping into your dreams. You don't want it waking you up in the middle of the night. Don't fall asleep listening to this pod. With that... We got to sign off for the weekend here. Uh, thank you all for listening. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the rock. Pound the rock.